Welcome to Channeled, our podcast about creating more together. Hi, I'm Nancy Corrigan, and today I'm here with Dr. Tamara Sussman and Dr. Sharon Kasselainen. Dr. Sussman is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at McGill University, and Dr. Kasselainen is a professor in the School of Nursing at McMaster University. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I'd just like to start by having having you tell me a little bit about yourselves and, and how you got involved in this kind of research. So Tamara, maybe we'll start with you. Okay, so um, uh, my former life before I came into academia was as a social worker. I did a lot of work uh, in hospitals and uh, in the community with older adults largely who were kind of becoming frail, um, the same population we're working with now. And I guess what bothered me was that we were doing all of these interventions uh, often on behalf of instead of with the people that we were working with. And I also was just curious about, is what we were doing working? So that kind of got me into the academic stream. And a lot of the issues that we were dealing with uh, were of the aging population were issues around loss, loss of autonomy, uh, mortality. So that really is the natural fit, I guess, to this, this project. Um, I guess the other piece of that was that despite the fact that these people were aging and they were getting older, uh, death was sort of a taboo topic. We kind of danced around it, but we didn't often address it directly. So I guess once again, that's really the need that I saw that I feel that this project is filling. Great. How about you, Sharon? So when I was in high school, uh, I actually worked as a bed maker, so I would get up before school, make beds. And this was back in kind of the 1980s, so quite a while ago. Uh, but I real, you know, I realized uh, that was the first time I even knew that there was long-term care, uh, and also realized just how vulnerable uh, this population is. I continued with that interest in working in long-term care uh, as I worked as a personal support worker during my summers in university, uh, and then uh, came back to long-term care after my graduate work and worked as a, a registered nurse for a few years as well. So, um, And then I started doing research. My PhD was focused uh, on uh, pain assessment in people who have dementia in long-term care. Uh, so what we were seeing was a lot of behaviors uh, that we thought were probably related more to pain than dementia, and we were missing all of that. So uh, I developed a pain assessment tool where you use behaviors instead of asking residents if they have pain. Uh, and we, during my PhD, I did some psychometric testing, and uh, we ended up with this short, nice tool, seven-item tool. Uh, but we realized uh, that was the easy work. The hard work was trying to get the tool in practice and right. getting people using it. So uh, did a few studies around that, uh, and that's where I kind of started working in participatory action research. Uh, so how can we you know, build on what's currently happening uh, to make any kind of implementation successful? and getting people's buy-in and making it a priority. So um, I, I did a couple of studies around that, uh, evaluated a, a pain protocol, mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, had another study uh, that evaluated uh, the nurse practitioner uh, role in implementing a pain team in long-term care. Uh, so both of those were successful. We showed reduced pain, uh, increased uh, functional ability, so we're 
pretty excited. Uh, and because we were using participatory action research, uh, my sense was that, uh, you know, it was more likely that they would carry on after, after we finished our research. So then I moved on and started looking at palliative care. So in a broader, broader sense, pain is still part of palliative care, but, uh, but under the same philosophy of, you know, trying to uh, use this action research uh, and work closely with staff and residents and families uh, and, you know, decision makers as well. And I had a five-year grant uh, that was funded through SHRC, and uh, that was really on building capacity in long-term care and the personal support worker role. Uh, we developed a bunch of tools and practices, um, and then Tamara and I met. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, you know, it's a nice blend. Uh, working with a social worker nursing I think it's a really nice partnership for this particular topic yeah. um, because it's uh, you know it's very much using uh, your uh, partnerships and trying to develop partnerships with the homes and uh, you know the research team and the residents and families to kind of work together yeah. uh, and that's what nurses and social workers I think do a good job at. Right, and and what I'm hearing is a lot of systems work. You know, how do we how do we improve the system? How do we change? You know, what's what's maybe has been a traditional. We've always done it this way, right? Right. Finding those new tools. Yeah, and I think what Sharon was getting at with the participatory action, which in a way, without me formally understanding what that meant when I was in practice, it really is working with instead of for people, right. whether that's with the older adults and the families or with the staff. Yeah. So you're really trying to understand what the needs are and bring uh, together a project and the evidence and kind of work in a partnership. That's awesome and it seems so not what's happening sometimes in our health system, right? Yeah, yeah. so that's great. So I want to talk a little bit about the ICANACP project. How did you get involved in that? We worked with John. John was on our, our TVN mm -hmm. study. John Yu. John yeah. Yu. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he kind of reached out. He had this idea of, of putting in another grant to CFN to kind of build, uh, you know, build more of a program of research as opposed to a study. Um, and it was great timing for us because our, our uh, previous study focused more on end-of-life uh, communication with families and residents and staff and we realized in that study that we were missing the boat with having some of these earlier conversations mm -hmm. with families and residents and we were we were seeing that in our data that you know families were quite stressed and anxious having to make these decisions at end of life uh, with you know sometimes just days uh, to make those decisions and not being very prepared so we had this idea we had a multi-component kind of intervention that included front-end and back-end communication and the stuff that the staff that made more sense for them to pick up was um, the end-of-life stuff so we kind of went with that that's the participatory action piece mm -hmm. of us mm -hmm. um, and just to give you context to that when we walked into those sites and we used the word palliative to them that was a code that represented someone was dying in three days right so what is an early conversation when that's your perspective yeah um, so a lot of the front-end work that we had done was really expanding this understanding of what palliative is and that's where you get 
then makes more sense to start thinking about earlier communication. So yeah, I think when when John approached us um, because of because we had been doing work in long-term care and that was a sector that he was interested in including in the study, it really was this great opportunity to kind of build on that piece. Because, you know, ironically, you've got people, the average uh, the average length of stay or the average lifespan in long-term care is about 18 months, but we'd still be hearing people say, oh, no, it's too early to be talking about that. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's a huge barrier to being able to get that work and to make sure the patients get the care that they want, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the the, uh, brochures. I know you've developed disease-specific pamphlets to try and get people thinking about this earlier. Yeah. So uh, that actually came from a totally unintended thing. Uh, where the staff themselves, when we were really trying to understand why what we wanted to do, which was to kind of build in um, a meeting within the first few weeks of someone's uh, relocation into long-term care and have a conversation. That wasn't flying. But they said, you know, we could really use some information about disease trajectories. Families really don't understand uh, that their relatives are taking a turn from the for the worse, and if they kind of understood what to expect, then maybe it would be easier for us to start engaging in these conversations. So with that came this opportunity, and basically it was the end of that study that we developed those pamphlets and had some kind of preliminary testing. And what we found um, was that the residents really appreciated the information in the pamphlets really it got them thinking a lot about things but they thought oh god my family member would never want to hear this and then the families said oh this is fantastic i this is actually makes a lot of sense uh now i understand what's going on with my relative but oh my god you'd never my mother would never want to hear this so what we learned was that there still needed to be because everyone was they were both worried about protecting the other yeah it was really about burdening the other and that they really needed the staff to after they receive this kind of information encourage maybe a conversation between the two of them but on the other side of the pie the staff without that much kind of training encouragement education and and discussion about whose role this might be really liked the pamphlets but preferred having them just up in the homes and not having the responsibility of giving them out because the minute they gave them out they were responsible for a conversation. Uh, So we're still, I I think, again, this project with John is really helping us formalize how to understand your role at the table in this conversation, um, how to feel empowered to have this conversation, and some tools that might be able to help you do that. Yeah, no, I understand from reading your publication, too, that, you know, you really were trying to engage the staff that are really at the front lines that spend the most time with residents in long-term care, so uh, AIDS, uh, people like that, Um, but they felt the least empowered to do that, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Why do you think that's happening? Long-term care is a very interesting sector to work in. It's like its own little micro system, Uh, and there's, you know, this clear hierarchy of healthcare providers and you know who uh, who reports to who and uh, it's it's an interesting dynamic uh, to work in. Given personal support workers provide eighty percent of the care, 
you would think that uh, they would be the ones who would get a lot of education and training and opportunities to build skills because they're the ones that are essentially providing the majority of the care. Mm -hmm. But they're often the ones excluded from any kind of education. Uh, And it's usually the registered staff who have opportunities. But what we found in our recent studies is they're not necessarily the ones who could benefit most from the education. So personal support workers and support staff Uh, are the ones that really aren't invited uh, to some of the education and also some of the team meetings that I think are really critical you know when we're getting families and residents to talk about some of their values and wishes and goals of care uh, as they approach end of life it's it's the personal support workers who have heard you know and had discussions uh, and they just they can be very simple discussions it Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be you know where you want to die discussions but uh, but I really believe they need to be included in those care conferences because often uh, if they do report some of the discussions they've had with residents and families either they're not heard uh, from the nurses or it's not documented so if they're not there then that information doesn't follow with the resident mm-hmm. so yeah hierarchy maybe too that yeah. they, it's like oh they're you know they don't really have the knowledge or the skills mm-hmm, exactly. to to translate what mm-hmm. the patient is saying what often that might be the most closest personal relationship right, right? Mm-hmm. so i think it's twofold too i agree of the hierarchy i do also think it's a little bit of a myopic misunderstanding about what advanced care planning is particularly mm-hmm. in long-term care where it is about illness and physical uh, prognostication, I can never say that word, um, is a part of it. But it's also simply about what you value in your life and what you're worried about in death and who's important to you um, and what you still want to accomplish. And those are the kinds of things that a lot of different professionals can sit at the table around. So I think I hope, my hope is that in addition to the systems work, if we can also expand our understanding of what constitutes talking about end of life, then maybe we can find places for these other people to sit at the table. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think, too, that some of this is about storytelling, mm-hmm. because I, I can imagine that, that, that the, the staff that are closest to the residents will hear a lot of stories mm-hmm. about their past, and that might help to inform the values of wishes, right? Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it really kind of takes a village, yeah. and it takes a bunch of people sitting around the table. What, I, what my dream would be is, at the very least, if we're about to engage in a formalized conversation with the resident, to ask them, okay, two, two staff that you feel close to that you'd also like to have here participating in this conversation because what we're hearing from them we did some pre-intervention support uh, focus groups and they said when we said who do you think should be having this conversation with you they didn't boil it down to a professional designation they they boiled it down to a relationship yeah yeah you know the people that they feel they can talk to the people that care about them the people they're close to which is often the personal support workers people they see every day yeah. who do the most intimate things with them right yeah yeah and i think it's nice uh you know that it's not a conversation you have at the very end so if they've been having these discussions uh early on with 
personal support workers, it's probably easier for them to build on those conversations when they have to make these important decisions. Now, this is a bit of a political question, but personal support workers are probably on the lower end of the pay scale mm -hmm. when you're looking at long-term care homes. Do you sense that there's any kind of, well, I'll get paid to do this, and, and should we be looking at, you know, how do we run that role? I think that's a really important point, uh, and we're sensing it as well in our discussions. And part of the issue uh, has to do with unions and scopes of practice. And uh, you know, we have to really be careful that we don't uh, ask you know personal support workers to do things beyond what they're allowed to do in their scopes of practice. But having discussions, like I think, you know, I think that's pretty basic and that should be within their scopes of practice but it's a it's a complicated uh, there's a lot of players at the table mm -hmm. uh, a lot of different opinions and values and then for physicians like really trying to kind of narrow that down a bit because mm -hmm. that's what we're sensing is people don't know what they're allowed to talk about and they just kind of assume oh the you know the doctor that's his job I don't right. need to deal with right. that. You know, we hear from the doctor, well, I'm only here once a week. You know, I, I assume the nurses are making, having those conversations. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, what happens if no one's having those conversations because they think the other one is? I think, I think what you're, I mean, what you're talking about is someone who's basically saying, listen, don't pile this on to me. I've already got so much to do and you're paying me $15 an hour. Thank yeah. you very much. I feel like you, I, I, I absolutely feel that personal support workers are underpaid, so I will say that. Uh, but I think in addition, I do think that what people need in their work life is inclusion and control over mm -hmm. there. And I think that you'll get that attitude when you're in a space where the personal support workers are constantly being told what to do and never being asked and included in what they think would work. Right. So I feel like the approach that we're taking um, somehow sometimes breaks down that barrier of it's not my job because people want to enjoy their work and yeah. people part of that is developing relationships um, and I, I feel that that mm -hmm. is a kind of a sideline benefit mm -hmm. of some of the stuff that we're doing. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you when you, when we've been working with some personal support workers, I mean, they are incredibly caring people who see these residents in, as their own family, essentially. So, you know, I think they're, they're actually uh, more willing to do things than we think, even mm -hmm. though they're not paid a lot. You know, there's lots we can be doing to improve, improve their role. Right. Right. Okay. So what's next? Um, what's the next phase in the ICANN ACP project yeah. for you? So we've uh, we've just been funded through CIHR to do a randomized control trial now uh, and scale up uh, our SPA program. Uh, and SPA is again stands for? Strengthening a palliative approach in long-term care. care. Right. So SPA LTC. So yeah, so we're pretty excited. Excellent. We've got, uh, we had another project uh, in there as well, through funded through CIHR, where we've been able to engage uh, other provinces. So Tamar and I uh, really have been doing our work in Ontario because uh, that's where we, we live. Mm -hmm. We've had really good findings from our first CFN study, 55% reduction in ER use in the last year of life for residents, which is great. Really? Yeah. So we're keeping them in long-term care longer, and that's what we're hearing uh, 
from our, our study findings that they want to stay in long-term care and, and die there. Right. Uh, and then we had uh, also found we had 72% uh, 72% reduction in hospital deaths. So, you know, they're, I mean, they're pilot find, findings. We didn't have a lot of data, but we're building on that with our randomized control trial. We'll be measuring that as well. And uh, so we're aiming to get... Uh, 12 long-term care homes in the intervention arm and 12 in the control arm uh, in three different provinces. Excellent. That's great. And I guess one of the other things that we're doing now, the one group of individuals that we haven't successfully been able to engage in our project in long-term care are people with dementia who are usually at kind of more advanced stages of the condition when they're in long-term care. So we're starting to look at uh, trying to engage people with dementia really at a much earlier stage and getting them to talk about um, their future care concerns while they're still able to kind of make them the center of their own end-of-life care by upstreaming those conversations. So that we found often needs to happen before long-term care. And so some of the projects that we're uh, doing right now involve that, working with the Alzheimer's Society, working in home care programs, and getting those conversations done earlier. Excellent, that's yeah. great. And, and one last question, I'm gonna ask you each this. Uh, what's your favorite part of the day? What gets you, what gets you up out of bed? You know, I, I have to say it's some of the anecdotal comments that we get from residents and families and uh, it's it's really cool for me to see the staff and the long-term care home kind of take it on as their own project uh, and they start saying our you know our program and doing uh, different things that we never planned on doing but kind of you know creating their own little take right. on the program based on you know what the interest is and the resources they have so I like that they're taking ownership of the program and uh, we just kind of get to sit by and and celebrate with them so um I'm thinking about this quote that I've never used yet, but it's definitely going to be the, the title of one of my papers. One of the residents in one of the studies that we did was just talking about their overall experience in long-term care. And they said, you know, it's kind of like slam, bam, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> and it, it, it constantly inspires me, I think, uh, when I get overwhelmed about how we're going to get this done, that done. Really, this is what we're, who we're doing it for. Yeah. We're doing it to improve the experience of living in long-term care. It's not about a body and a bed. It's about a person and a space. And I think that that is what keeps me interested and engaged and inspired. That's amazing. Well, you're both doing such amazing work, and we look forward to hearing what comes next and what your results are. So thank you so much for being here today. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Nancy. This is Nancy Corrigan from Channel 3 Communications, and you've been listening to Channeled, our podcast. 